Welcome and good morning. Uh, it is good to be with you for worship. Let me run through a few announcements for you. Some of these are going to be on the back of your bulletin. I would encourage you to read that, uh, and some won't be. Uh, the next two Sunday mornings, we will not have Sunday school, so that's for all ages. We will not be doing Sunday school for adults, kids, youth, anybody. We'll just be doing our regular times of worship. Uh, secondly, the admissions committee is meeting today at 4 p.m. in the library right here. We have a very special service this evening, followed by a pizza party for the cherub and primary choirs. So even if you aren't involved in those choirs or have children, we would love for you to come out and enjoy that time of worship with us this evening. Let's see. Next. There was an email that went out this past week about a marriage workshop, and here's my pitch. Uh, we love to invest in our kids, in their sports, in their school, in all of those things, um, and we invest in those things so that they can become better at those things and stronger in those things. What our kids need also is that their parents invest in their marriages. Um, if you heard of the escalator image, um, escalators are always going down, right? A marriage is like, if you're not working against the escalator, your marriage is probably not getting stronger. So if you're not investing in your marriage, you're probably just moving down the escalator at a very slow pace. So there is an opportunity. Um, if you don't like any of those examples, I apologize. In January, there is going to be a time of practical learning and practice uh, where we can think about our marriages, and actually do activities to strengthen areas in which we might not be um, so strong. So we're doing three nights in January. There is an email with way more details about it. It's going to be a great time. And if you are interested and you didn't get that email or you need to ask some questions about it, please get in touch with me or Heath. We would love to talk to you more about it. It's important that you sign up because there's some homework that you need to do before the workshop begins. That's all I'll say about that for now. Um, lastly, we have our special Christmas Eve candlelight service coming up this coming Sunday evening, of course, Christmas Eve at 5 p.m., where we'll be enjoying the Lord's Supper as well. So we're looking forward to that, and we hope that you can join us for those services. Now, as we go into worship this morning, would you ask God to help you prepare for this time, uh, even in prayer? So let's prepare our hearts and minds for worship.
call to worship this morning from Psalm 16. This is God's word. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also. My heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Would you please pray with me? God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And so we are gathered here in your presence to worship you and to join in with you in your joy that you abundantly give us through your Son Jesus and by your Holy Spirit. God, would you lead us by your spirit this morning into this joy uh, as we worship you, as we sing, as we hear from your word, as we receive it. God, would you cause us not just to know your joy and your goodness, but to experience it and to live it out. God, we thank you for this time of worship, and we know that you will bless it when we come by faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing our first hymn, which is Go Tell It on the Mountain, which is hymn 224. Let's worship with hymn 224.
your bulletin, you'll find the confession of faith, which is the next portion of our service. It's one way in which, of course, we speak to the world. We tell the world what it is that we believe, not just for our own sake, but for the world's sake. So if you would, I ask you, believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's the third week of, third Sunday of Advent, and this week's theme is joy. And our reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 44. Of course, you're invited to turn there if you would like. I'll read this. Scripture now. This is God's word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. It's with this theme of joy that I'd like to um, lead us in prayer with. So if you would, uh, please join me in prayer. Dear Lord, we are grateful to be here this morning. We know that this world gives us a lot of options for counterfeit joy. We are sold joy every day, whether it be a new video game, a new car, a new sweater, new shoes, a new show, a new rifle, a new hunting trip, a new relationship. We are sold these things every day, day in and day out. And no matter how many times we tell ourselves not to be fooled into thinking the next thing will fulfill us, we fall for it again. Father, we are shaped by these things. We're shaped by these never-ending sources of counterfeit joy, whether we want to be or not. But here this morning, your Son, who is the true source of joy, greets us. Lord Jesus, we come here to worship, to not just Know that you are our Lord and Savior with our mind, but we come here to experience your grace and forgiveness and power in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You had no need to create us. You're rich in yourself. You have all fullness of life, all glory, all beauty, all goodness and holiness in yourself. God, we know that you are sufficient unto yourself and incredibly You created us to bring about the riches of your glory and to make us happy in you 
joyful in you. And in this we rejoice in you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, we pray this morning that you would well up within us the joy that you had with your Father since before the world existed. The joy of our salvation, the joy of our justification and sanctification that is all by your grace through the simple act of faith. So we pray, Lord, that you would meet the needs of your people, that you would bring joy to your people here this morning. For we have many spoken and unspoken needs. We all are grasping for joy. So, Lord, I pray that we would find it in you. I pray that you would make this Sabbath a day in which you form your people according to the lasting joy of your kingdom. And God, with that in mind, I pray and ask that you would lead us in the prayer that you taught your disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. If you would, I invite you to stand for our next hymn, which is hymn 199, hymn 199, See Amid the Winter's Snow. Let's stand and sing together.
Amen. You may be seated. As you get seated, we'll take up our morning tithes and offerings. And while we do that, um, I want to turn your attention to the insert in your bulletin. If you didn't get one, we can get you one. Uh, The diaconate has included this for you to see an overview of the church's finances. And if you have any questions about this, I invite you to um, ask Robert Prysock or David Willers. They would be more than happy, or any of the other deacons, they would be more than happy to talk to you uh, about these things. Um, So we'll take up our uh, morning offering now.
Please pray with me. God, as we can see um, in this handout that the, the diaconate made, that you have blessed this church financially. So God, we give our tithes and offerings to you. We dedicate them to you for your kingdom work and that we pray that you would continue to bless this church uh, with the resources needed to proclaim the gospel, uh, to make disciples, uh, to care for the needs of the sick and the poor in our church and in our community. And Lord, would you do so much more than that? So we, again, dedicate these tithes and offerings to your work, and we ask that you would make great use of them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our scripture text for the sermon this morning is uh, a very brief one, one verse, but I'd still invite you to turn there with me if you'd like to. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Before I read it, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Uh, We pray that you would apply it to our hearts, uh, that you would give us a sense of your majesty and of Christ's glory and of the power of the Spirit. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this ends the reading of God's Word. So this year for Advent, uh, I've been doing a series I've entitled Jesus Speaks. We've talked about how he can speak the language of every human being all over the face of this earth. Um, This week we are talking about how Christ can speak to our deepest needs. Um, The famous theologian, Willie Nelson, it's always funnier when you say famous theologian on the front of it. He said, you can't make a record if you ain't got nothing to say. Can't make music if you ain't got nothing to play. And a lot of Christians find themselves with very little to say. And the reason for that is generally because we can only give what we've received. We have to receive something from God before we have anything to give to the world. And part of what we're meant to receive is Christ dealing with us in the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts. Him dealing with our deepest needs, not just the superficial stuff like you come and you sing Christmas songs. It's Christ actually dealing with you that gives you something to say. So my point this morning, and I actually don't have three points, I have one point today, is that if you have deep spiritual needs, deep emotional needs, Jesus can speak to them. But you have to bring him into those needs. You have to go to him. And today we're going to see that once you allow him to speak to your deepest needs, you'll find that you can start speaking to the deepest needs of others. That's the big idea. So Isaiah is a book that is referenced a lot 
I mean, it's, called, it's often called the fifth gospel. There's so much Jesus in it. There's so much good news in it. There's so much joy in it. But it's a book that's understood very little as a whole, partly because it's just such a big book right there in the middle of the Old Testament. If you read the book and study it carefully, you'll find that the context of the book is very dark. And it's that darkness that actually makes the light shine so brightly. So chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah deal with the fact that the Assyrians have invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. And they're pillaging and they're plundering. And then the second half of the book, chapters 40 through 66, deal with the future fact that the Babylonians are going to invade Judah, Jerusalem, and ransack it. And that's going to set the context for much of the rest of the Old Testament, the exile as it's been called. And the commentator Barry Webb summarizes the first ten chapters of Isaiah where we find our passage resting in this way. He says, Israel has gone through a progression from moral decay through social disintegration to national collapse to outright conquest by Assyria. So first he says, moral decay marks the context of the book of Isaiah. For instance, Isaiah 9.17, a little later in our chapter. This is uh, Isaiah's description of the people of Israel at the time. Everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks foolishness. Then social disintegration, verse 20 and 21 of Isaiah 9, says they slice meat on the right but are still hungry, and they devour on the left but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. It's all a bunch of infighting. It's a bunch of godless, immoral people with the tribes going to war with each other. And then chapter 10 speaks to the national collapse that's coming because of the invasion of the Assyrians. Isaiah 10, 3 and 4. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. That's Israel's future. Become a prisoner or die. That's what they're looking at. It's dark. And you have to understand all that darkness to understand just how significant it is for God to say that the people who walked in darkness are seeing a great light. And you need to understand that darkness just to see how much hope we can get from Isaiah. Because in some ways... We're in really dark times ourselves. This isn't just good, this isn't pie in the sky good stuff. This is real stuff in really dark times that's meant to apply to our deepest needs. What do our dark times look like now? Well, I mean, you could go a hundred different directions with that. I'm going to go kind of the psychological direction. Recent studies have shown that the average teenager now deals with approximately the same level of stress and anxiety that someone would have dealt with in the 1950s who became institutionalized. On the 11th of this month, the New York Post published an article titled, Emotional Support Dogs Are So Stressed Out That They Need Massages and Drugs. I thought it was funny too. That's, why I, that's the main reason I bring it up. But the article starts like this. It says, many New Yorkers turn to Fido to help them with their mental health issues. But veterinarians and trainers say city pups 
are increasingly dealing with their own issues, often as a result of soothing their needy owners. Now, the idea is that people are buying these pets to give them emotional support, but they're so messed up, like they're putting it off on the pets, and now the pets have psychological damage. And so well, there's this cottage industry of pet massage parlors popping up because the pets need something for their stress. And then they're, obviously, and they're giving the dogs like nerve pills and the like. I was telling this to my, my daughters the other day. And one of my daughters tells me that she was on Instagram recently and saw a pic of a lady who posted two pill bottles side by side. One was hers. One was her dog's. And it, I think it was Xanax or something. And, and, it, and the caption was something like, we're both on the same meds, LOL. We live in times of confusion. Right? Technology is changing fast. Um, society is changing fast. There's political unrest. There's cultural unrest. There's upheaval everywhere we go. And the result is that people are confused, angry, depressed, anxious, and searching for answers. And, you know, sometimes the emotional support pet doesn't have all the answers. And you end up sending it, it gets institutionalized because of the level of stress you're putting off on it. So I, as, as I was reading this article in the New York Post, it had a hashtag on it that said anxi hashtag anxiety. So I clicked it to see what other articles they had recently published about stress and anxiety. And I just wanted to give you a list of some of the, the titles of the articles. First, stress eating comfort food makes stress worse. Study finds. And I'm like, I'm doomed. <laughs> and I actually don't agree with that, but I digress. Next, why Gen Z and millennials are losing sleep over money more than older generations. It's because we don't have any, that's why. <laughs> Next, I'm a burnout coach. Here are my 10 tips for better work-life balance. Four, tis the season to stress out. Try these simple psychological hacks to end holiday agita instantly. Good luck with that. Um, you know, more people die of heart attacks around Christmas season than any other time of the year. We're going to give hope to that. Uh, next, what is a stress rash? How to manage hives caused by anxiety. And finally, my favorite, bad grammar causes actual physical distress in others, study reveals. So if I say, y'all, we done got so stressed, we stressed in the dogs. <laughs> I can cause you actual physical distress. I'm sorry. <laughs> in August, Time Magazine published an article titled, America has reached peak therapy, but why is our mental health getting worse? Here's a quote from the article. The U.S. has reached peak therapy. Counseling has become fodder for hit books, podcasts, and movies. Professional athletes, celebrities, and politicians routinely go public with their mental health struggles. And everyone is talking, correctly or not, in the language of therapy, peppering conversations with references to gaslighting, toxic people, and boundaries. I hear those phrases almost every week. Almost every week. Not from preachers. Continuing, all this mainstream awareness is reflected in the data, too, by the latest federal estimates about one in eight U.S. adults now takes an antidepressant, and one in five has recently received some kind of mental health 
care. An increase of almost 15 million people in treatment since 2002. Even in the recent past, from 2019 to 2022, use of mental health services jumped by almost 40% among millions of U.S. adults with commercial insurance, according to a recent study. But something isn't adding up. Even as more people flock to therapy, U.S. mental health is getting worse by multiple metrics. Suicide rates have risen about 30% since 2000. Almost a third of U.S. adults now report symptoms of either depression or anxiety, roughly three times as many as in 2019. And about one in 25 adults has a serious mental illness, like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Since 2002, the share of Americans getting mental health care has grown by one-third. So this article is asking the question, how can it be that so many people are so many more people are going to therapy now but at the same time so many more people are reporting that they're unhappy that they're emotionally distressed and here's the article's answer to that it says even styles of therapy with solid evidence behind them can vary in efficacy depending on the clinician at the reins one of the best predictors of success in therapy, research has shown, is the relationship between patient and provider, which may explain why it can feel like a crapshoot, with some people leaving their sessions feeling enlightened and empowered and others feeling the same as when they walked in. The key is the provider. The key is the clinician and your relationship with him. That's what they're saying. A young man interviewed in the article who had success by going to counseling said, I had a rough upbringing. I had a lot of people take advantage of me. I was bullied really badly in school. I needed more than pills. I needed guidance. He's saying, I needed someone who could help me, who could tell me what to do, who could give me guidance. I gave you all that context for where we are right now for a reason. When Israel was going through moral decay, social disintegration, you know, the collapse of their nation, that's what sets the context for the hope of the coming Savior in Isaiah. And while we're going through many of the same things, with the added mental and emotional darkness that so many people are facing right now, that should set the context for the first name that Isaiah calls the coming Messiah in verse 6. And it is Wonderful Counselor. In the Old Testament, a counselor is someone who gives wisdom, who gives guidance, who teaches you how to live. You know, Audio Slave had a song 20 years ago or so called Show Me How to Live. He says, he's saying to God in it, you gave me life, now show me how to live. And Isaiah is telling us that's what Christ can do. He can show us how to live. Now how does he do it? By giving us rules? Well, yeah, he gives us rules. But it's much, much more than that. The text in Isaiah 6 says, To us a child is born, to us a son is given. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So in this one man, this is what we talked about last week. You get God, the Mighty God. But you also get a child, a son. He is both God and man. So he can give us the wisdom of God as God, while as a man also sympathizing with our weaknesses. 
and being able to understand our deepest, darkest troubles and our deepest needs. What does that mean for us? How does that work out? Well, when I was in seminary, uh, I had to take a counseling class that I did not want to take. Um, it was the only counseling class that MDiv students had to take, and I, it turned out it wasn't nearly enough. I needed way more, but at the time it was like, I don't want to go to a counseling class. Like, people get all up in their feelings, and they get emotional, and I'm a man, and I don't want to talk about that stuff. And uh, anyway, we're sitting in class one, the first day, and the teacher says, what I want you to do is break off into pairs for half an hour, and we're going to split 15 minutes, and you're going, with your partner, you're going to counsel each other. The first person's going to say, tell me what's going on in your life. And you're going to respond, and you're going to have a counseling session, and you're going to go back and forth. And so I get paired off with a gentleman, and uh, he says, oh, tell me what's going on in your life. How are you doing? Anything wrong right now? The only thing wrong right now is I have to do this because it's stupid. I don't want to do it. And he was just aghast, shocked and appalled. And uh, he just, he started filling me in on the value of counseling and of therapy and how I needed to take this seriously. And this was a wonderful opportunity. And uh, I found out later that this gentleman's wife was in the marriage and family therapy program studying. So she was studying to be a professional counselor and I just basically insulted her whole being and livelihood. I didn't know it. Um, so we talked very little afterward. Um, but... Uh, I thought, I reflected on that, as I, st I bring it up now, because I reflected on it. And, you know, the reason that our counseling teacher wanted us to go through that experience because, because he didn't believe that we were fit to give counsel unless we had first been counseled. He didn't think we were fit to guide others unless we received guidance from others. In other words, you know, he wanted us not just on the chair side of the desk in the office, but the couch side of the desk. In the office. He wanted us on the other side of the desk. He wanted us to experience it. And see, that's Christ. Yes, he's God, but as man, he's been on the other side of the desk. He's experienced what it's like to go through our troubles and trials as a man. Uh, Tim Keller tell, uh, used to tell a story fairly often that uh, he had some medical procedure and condition he was going through, and the x-ray technician there at the office was a member of his church, and this x-ray technician was rough. You know, he'd just slap you around, throw you on the desk, be real matter-of-fact, try to get you in, try to get you out. And Keller said, you know, he returned visits, and he came back one day, and suddenly this x-ray technician was gentle and comforting and consoling. And he took his time, and he was patient. And Keller said he just had to ask him. He said, something changed about you. Your bedside manner is totally different then it's always been, what's going on? And the x-ray technician said to him, well, I actually had to get an x-ray recently. And so I had to get on the table, and I felt what it was like, and I realized, oh, I probably need to calm down and slow down. See, with the incarnation, Jesus, he's been on the table. He's been on the other side of the desk. He's experienced what it's like to go through pain and through trouble. The mighty God in the Christmas story became a child, a son, a man. He's been on the table. Hunger, loneliness, grief, betrayal, loss, even torture. He's experienced it all. He's been on this side of the desk. He can relate. 
B.B. Warfield said, because Jesus is God and man, we can rest on his almighty arm and appeal to his human sympathy. Charles Spurgeon said, you may have a friend that talks very sweetly with you, and you'll say, well, he's a kind, good soul, but I can't trust his judgment. You have another friend who has a good deal of judgment, and yet you say of him, certainly he's a man of prudence above many, but I cannot find out his sympathy. I never get his heart. If he were ever so rough and untutored, I would sooner have his heart without his prudence than his prudence without his heart. But we go to Christ, and we get wisdom. We get love. We get sympathy. We get everything that can possibly be wanted in a counselor. End quote. We get his head, and we get his heart. We get his wisdom, and we get his sympathy. We get his knowledge, and we get his love. You know, John 1, another famous Christmas text, says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There it is again, God and man. The word didn't become brick. It didn't become rock. It didn't become stone. It became flesh. Flesh is warm. It's soft. It's vulnerable. In the incarnation, God became touchable, holdable, killable, vulnerable. Hebrews says he's been touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He becomes a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, he came and sat on the other side of the desk. I don't often take notes during sporting events, but one leaped out at me a while back. I heard James Conner, who's running back for the Arizona Cardinals, he went through Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was in college. And it was, it was scary. It was touch and go for him. And the scouting reports on him said he runs like someone much bigger than he actually is. He's running back. But one of his teammates in that broadcast said he runs like someone who's faced death and survived. Jesus counsels like someone who's faced death and survived. You think you can't come to him and say, why? And then you read the Gospels and his last words on the cross are what? Why? Why? He experienced it. He's been on the table. He's been on this side of the desk. You need help dealing with loss? He suffered loss. He's seen his best friends betray him. He said to the Father, why have you forsaken me? You need help with betrayal? He suffered betrayal. You need help with grief? He's grieved. We get to see him weeping at a graveside in the Gospels. You need help facing death. He actually died. He's the only person who died who can tell us what it was like and what he experienced. You need help with temptation. He's been tempted. You need help with sin. He's never struggled with sin. But he suffered for the sin that you're struggling with. You need help facing the wrath of God that poured on, out on this world for unrighteousness. Who can help you deal with the wrath of God better than someone who fully experienced the wrath of God on the cross? There's a documentary called The Heart of Man. And it's about, it's, it's basically a documentary about several men giving their testimonies about how God helped them through addictions and really dark times. 
And one scene in that documentary that, was, that hit me was a man who was dealing with addiction, who had a dream that he was in prison. And in the dream, of course, the prison symbolizing his addiction, ultimately, he's sitting in the prison, in the cafeteria, and no one would sit down with him to eat. If you've been a kid, you know how awkward that can be. And so Jesus walks into the cafeteria dressed like a prisoner and sits down across the table from the man and doesn't say anything. The man said, I asked him, would you eat a meal with me? And Jesus responded, I'll eat with you anytime you want. But the door is open. You can leave anytime you want. And that gentleman said, he wasn't just demanding that I stop. He was demanding that I invite him into that moment so that I could understand that moment and what's underneath that moment. And that broke me. He starts weeping as he tells the story. He said, it's one thing to read, I'm loved. It's one thing to read, I'll be with you. But for Jesus to be with me in my addiction, for him to be with me in prison and in sickness and in relapse over and over, that's what changed me. It was him saying, I can set you free. Until that day, I'm with you. I'll eat with you anytime that you want. I think what so many of us are paralyzed with in this modern world is it's just guilt. It's shame. It's a world telling you that you have to live by the most stringent moral codes that they can come up with that are ever-changing, constantly changing. This, be canceled. Do that or be canceled. Don't do this or be canceled. It's this moral hamster wheel that we're all on that gives us no offer of forgiveness, no offer for atonement. And here's Jesus saying, yeah, I've given you rules. I've given you the Ten Commandments. You know, Chesterton said, if man won't live by the Ten Commandments, he'll live by 10,000 commandments. We're in a world of 10,000 commandments. Christ gives us 10. And he says, and you know what? You'll never keep them perfectly. He knows it. That's why he died for us. Because of our failures. And he says, I can set you free. I can help you become more righteous. But until that day, I promise that I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll always be with you. You will always have an audience with me. You will always have my ear. And you can remember, this is not just the mighty God. This is the man, Christ Jesus. Uh, this is the one who came and sat on the other side of the table. Who sat on the other side of the desk. And on the other side of, of the table. Jesus can speak to your deepest needs. Like this gentleman that I just talked about in the Heart of Man documentary. Jesus came into the dark places. That's where he wants to go. We want to hide ourselves. We want to put on our best self for Jesus. If you needed to put on your best self for Jesus, Jesus didn't need to die. And when you let him into those deep places, those dark places, that's when you can actually get something to say to people. I can tell you as a pastor, and some of you have talked to me about serious stuff, you know this. Every, you know, outside of just quoting scripture to you, everything I have to give is through what I've suffered what I've experienced, and how I've let God deal with me in my own pain. You know, and really, it's 2 Corinthians 1.3 and following. This is the textbook answer on how a Christian gets something to say. 
It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is the Christian life. You go to the God of all comfort when you're suffering. He comforts you. And as you do this over and over and over again, He ministers to you, and that's how you learn how to minister to others. You can only give what you first received. Do you know how to go to Christ and get counsel? Do you know how to go to Christ and get comfort? This is a call to action. If you don't, today's the day to start, especially during the holiday season. I remember during Thanksgiving several years ago, Redigging all my issues, you know, everything that I went through in my childhood and all these things, and just saying, if Jesus can't help me with this, how can I expect to ever help anybody else from a pulpit? It will never happen. You've got to go to him. You've got to learn to get comfort from him. I've mentioned it several times, but I've been reading this book by Rick Rubin called The Creative Act. It's a phenomenal book on creativity. And he describes art as a, per- a person working out his beliefs and experiences through a piece of art. It's something flowing out of that person's experience. And this is a quote he said, and I wish I'd have read this in a preaching textbook years ago. It says, it is a truth your art is coming from, a truth that lives inside of you. Through your living it out, that truth becomes embedded in your work. If the work doesn't represent who you are and what you're living, how can it hold any kind of energetic charge? Apply that to Christianity. It means preachers. If your preaching is not coming from your experience, it will have no power. We didn't learn that. We didn't learn that in seminary. We learned how to exegete a passage. We didn't learn how to exegete our own hearts. And, you know, I read a writer who said, like, the key to good art is, as a writer is you cut yourself open and you bleed all over the page. It's like that's what our lives are meant to be. Christ is bled for us, and now we, that, we, that ministers to us. And we let it out, and we share it with the world. And in your life, in your personal life, you're all preachers, not to stand in a pulpit, but to live out in the pulpit that is this world. If you want to have something to say, go to the wonderful counselor. Go to the God of all comfort. Get comforted from and by him. And that's where you get comfort to give to others. I'll close with this. Rick Warren. Not somebody you will hear me quote in sermons often. But the most pow- one of the most powerful things I've ever heard from a pulpit in my life was Rick Warren's young, I think 20-something son, died a very tragic, untimely death. And Warren took a break from the pulpit for a while. And his first Sunday back, if you watch this, you can see it on YouTube or wherever. And you can feel the anticipation in the crowd as he's going to get up and open his mouth for the first time after what he's been through. And Warren got up and preached a message. He said, Now I know some people ask, Where was God when I lost my child? But the answer is, When you lost your child, God was in the same place that he was when he lost his child. On his throne, sovereign. And Warren said, 
Consider that God's greatest pain, the death of his son, became his greatest source of ministry. It was through Christ's greatest pain, and the Father's greatest pain. It's through that that's why we're all here today. It's because of what he went through. And so Warren said, consider that God wants to take your greatest pain and turn it into your life message. He wants to use your mess for a message. He wants to use your tests for a testimony. He wants to take the things you're most ashamed of, most embarrassed of, that causes you the most pain to use that in the life of others for good. When Jesus says, let your light shine before men, he's not just talking about quoting Bible verses. He's talking about this. Christ's greatest pain is his greatest ministry. He is our wonderful counselor because he's been on the other side of the table. Go to him. Learn how to get comfort. And you'll find that you actually have something to say. Invite him into the darkest places in your life and let him turn them into light. Invite him into your pain and let him turn it into healing. Healing for the nations, not just for yourself. And then you'll be able to show people, I've been on the other side of the desk, and so is my Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while we live in a world where we, you've never promised us that we will not experience pain, you have promised us that you will be with us in our pain. Minister to us even this day. I know so often we come to church and we just don't want you to meddle with us. We don't want you to step on our toes. We don't want you to go into those deep, dark places. But Lord, we invite you there today and ask that you would minister to us and that through your ministry to us, we might learn to minister to others. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's close our service thinking about the humiliation of our Lord, the God who became man as we sing him number 230, Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor. Let's stand as we...
Well, I look forward to our Sunday night service this evening and the children's choir singing. We'd love to have you all with us again. Until then, leave with God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.